Star Trek has never been just one thing. While we tend to think we know what Star Trek is now, its worldview, themes, and approach to storytelling, as well as its backstory, and even characterizations, all came together over time and were shepherded by diverse voices, including those of the fans after the 60s series ended. The ideas we associate with Trek are flexible, shifting and changing over time, depending on who was writing it, and even who was watching. In this sense, then, Star Trek itself is a mirror universe. Or, to put it another way, Star Trek's real mirror universe is our universe. In this podcast, we'll be gazing into the mirror that is Trek, and focusing on how that reflection can shift and change. As Garrick once said, Star Trek, like beauty, is in the eye of the beholder. In 1987, for the first time in 18 years, audiences could watch new Star Trek on TV. Over the next 18 years, Star Trek produced four separate TV series, 25 seasons, and over 600 episodes. In retrospect, this was extraordinary and unlikely. Even given that the original series survived and gained a wide audience in syndication, and even given that there had been four movies about the original cast, it could not be predicted that the revived series would be as popular as it was, or that it would last as long as it did. At its height, Star Trek The Next Generation had a peak audience of more than 11 million viewers, more than any other Star Trek TV series before or since. This success was particularly improbable given the stormy and unhappy circumstances of Next Gen's early years. Although notionally helmed by Gene Roddenberry, the show's production was a constant battleground in its early years, with writers and producers fighting for influence and control over the new series. From the third season, as Roddenberry's health declined, control of the franchise passed to a new figure, Rick Berman, a former documentary filmmaker and producer. Berman was ultimately a key figure in four Star Trek series, The Next Generation, Deep Space Nine, Voyager, and Enterprise. He is one of the most polarizing, controversial, and important figures in the history of Star Trek. In today's episode, Adam and I will be discussing the Berman years and what came after, how Star Trek was reinvented in 1987, and how it adapted or failed to adapt in the years since. We'll be discussing the values of the show since The Next Generation, and how Star Trek has engaged with the worlds of the 80s, 90s, and now. We'll be discussing the cancellation of Enterprise in 2005, the franchise's revival under J.J. Abrams, and what we can learn from its decline and resurgence. G'day, welcome back to the Mirror Universe podcast. I'm Douglas McDonald-Norman. And I'm Adam Prosser. Thank you for joining us. In today's episode, we're going to be discussing Star Trek since 1987. This is an era that's uniquely close to my heart, given that for all that the original series was an important part of my upbringing, it is the shows that have been produced since 1987 which well and truly solidified me as a Trekkie. How the show came to be in those years, and its ultimate fate, is crucial to what Star Trek is and where Star Trek might be going. Yes, uh, it's, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, too, am a guy, a Next Generation era guy, um, even more so than even something like Deep Space Nine, which ultimately is probably my favorite uh, version of the show. Um, But Next Generation is is definitely what I actually grew up watching uh, and didn't even watch the original series until 
fairly late in life, not until the college era. Um, and um, it's, yeah, it's definitely, it it is a bit of a break from Tre what Trek had been up to that point. Um, and uh, it, it, it it's what enabled Trek to evolve into something new. It really does feel like a whole new show um, in some ways. And even was pro kind of intended to be in some ways by Roddenberry. I know he he actually mandated a f quite a few things that would be, and, and, a, and a number of other people on the show, I think, mandated that things would be different from the old show uh, in many ways. Like, uh, initially, they didn't want to use any of the aliens from the original show, I believe, uh, at first. They broke that pretty fast, obviously, and Worf is right right there from the beginning. But still, they, they clearly uh, they wanted to shift, uh, shift things um, pretty quickly. Um, and, and the night, it's also, it really does feel like the next era of Star Trek in a way that, yeah, sure, all the earlier stuff and, like, the changeover to the 70s animated, the movies, so on, yeah, there's been various evolutions, but in terms of what Trek represented in terms of its ideology and its political, uh, political stuff, I think, uh, the real break is Next Generation, and particularly once ne Next Generation really started to get going, and once Roddenberry faded into the background and then ultimately passed on, uh, which all coincide with, not coincidentally, the end of the Cold War. Um, there's a, uh, a book by Francis Fukuyama, which I have to admit right now I have not read. It's called The End of History and the Last Man. And um, this is the era that Trek really encapsulates in many ways, just as the 60s era encapsulated the Vietnam War era and the... Um, and the 60s, you know, all the various uh, uprisings and turmoil of the 60s and 70s. Um, but the 90s was the the era where we won history, supposedly. And that maybe made it a very good fit with Star Trek in many ways. And that's reflected in many ways in Next Generation and beyond. I think that's absolutely right. That Next Gen takes place both following... Largely following the Cold War, or following the most intense period of the Cold War, so it's not shaped to the same degree by Cold War animosity as the original series was, which automatically leads to a different focus in terms of the types of stories you tell and how you tell them. But moreover, one of the key features of the Next Generation is that even more, there is a parallel between the world depicted in the Next Generation and certain assumptions underpinning the 90s in that in many ways the next generation episodes take place after the end of history in a world which has by and large solved many of the key problems in the 20th century it is a world that is post poverty is a world it is a world that is post discrimination it is a world that is post-materialism and acquisitiveness, at least among humans, in a way that even the original series was not. One of the key building blocks of The Next Generation, indeed one of the key controversies that involved its production, is that it involves a world in which humans are better, in which they are no longer driven by the same drives, the same animosities that would characterise humans in the 1990s. And one of the reasons why the show was for so many people so difficult to make is how do you make a series about people who don't want anything? Right. Um, and I, I wouldn't go so far as to say they didn't want anything, but it was certainly the idea of um, we're we're all very nice now, <laughs> to simplify it. Uh, it's, it's uh, as we mentioned in uh, previous episodes, it, 
probably did evolve to a certain degree out of Roddenberry going, um, you know, well, I want to be the captain and I want everyone to listen to what I have to say. And, and, uh, I want, I want a, a team that, you know, anticipates my every move and w that we all work together and all that sort of thing. But, uh, but it did come out in many ways. It was, you know, justified by what Star Trek had been supposedly up to that point where it was, um, you know, uh, uh, the idea of, yeah, a utopian future where people had gotten over, uh, obviously in the original series, they'd gotten over war and poverty and a lot of the ma the major issues, but they were struggling with what that meant. And it was, it felt much more aspirational in the 60s. It felt more like a challenge in the original series. Like, this is what we're going to accomplish. We're going to get our act together and we're going to get this done. Whereas in Next Generation, it it feels a little bit more like a fait accompli. It feels more like, okay, yeah, this is this is this is this is doable. This is this is where we're inevitably headed. And in many ways, and again, just as you know, uh, Star Trek is the gut, the JFK era, the gunboat diplomacy in the Vietnam era. Uh, Next generation is the era of. Uh, just to be clear, the end of history referred to the idea that since the Cold War had ended, uh, all and the U.S. was reign supreme. Uh, both the U.S idea of liberal democracy and capitalism, they'd all supposedly triumphed. There weren't any serious uh, contenders to the throne at that point, and so everything else from here on was going to be about managing uh, the situation, and was going to be about negotiation, and it was going to be about, uh, you know, uh, finding an equilibrium, finding uh, agreements between things, all under the aegis of this benevolent, uh, uh, this benevolent power. Uh, and that's very obviously reflected, especially in Next Generation. Um, Deep Space Nine actually not uh, not uh, very very deliberately, I think, sets up a situation that parallels the idea of a a uh, post-Soviet satellite state. I think that was uh, one of the initial setups of uh, Deep Space Nine was that Bajor was like uh, you know a Kazakhstan or someplace like that or Azerbaijan after the Soviet Union had fallen apart the Soviet Union being the Cardassians um, of course they complicated that in a lot of ways and uh, as I said last time it became about American Empire just as much as it became about the fall of the Soviet Union but that is clearly you know something that overlooks the whole series for the bulk of the Burman era uh, not coincidentally right up until the end of Voyager and then 9-11 happens, and then you enter the third era of Star Trek, which we're currently in, which is the post-9-11 era, <laughs> essentially. But there's a very clear break between, I think, all three of those eras in, in that sense. Yeah, I'd agree. One of the things that I think makes Star Trek so attractive to nerds is that it's very easy to classify and periodize, at least in a superficial way. You can point to discrete eras, discrete modes of production, and can effectively say this is that oh god are we going to start saying it, the, the, the golden era the golden age the silver age and the bronze age of star trek i just realized you actually can do that sorry over my dead body yeah yeah sorry go, go ahead go ahead and i think that's one of the no 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 I, I i'm glad you bring that up because one of the key things I want to make out with this podcast is that there's not really a golden age of star trek there Next Generation is undeniably the era in which the series enjoyed its greatest level of popular success, breaking through a hardcore base of nerds in their basements, a, a, a statement made with some love, um, breaking through a hardcore base, 
and expanding towards a broader popular audience. But it's important to recognise, A, that the fact that it was able to do so is not an unmitigated good thing, and B, that that doesn't mean that we have to accept that The Next Generation is the only way to make a Star Trek series, and future shows should be judged by how well they match up to a show that predominantly aired before I was born. We need to understand why The Next Generation did as well as it did, but we can't simply regard that as that's the only way that you can do Star Trek or that's the only way you can make popular Star Trek. Right. So that obviously uh, begs the question of why was The Next Generation so successful? And I will throw that one over to you. Uh, yeah, well, I, you know, I was just going to raise that same thing. Uh, I think I think, if I had to boil it down to one thing, and it wasn't just one thing, of course, but if I had to boil it down to one thing, I think TNG happened at exactly the right time uh, when um, Star Trek fandom had been established. It, it had become an institution uh, in a way that it arguably hadn't been in the 70s during Phase 2. I mean, it existed. It was, potentially, you could say it was thriving, uh, but it wasn't maybe quite the powerhouse that it... Uh, that it was during the TNG era. The other 10 years established it as, well, we've got, we had the movies, we've had, uh, you know, we've, we've made our mark on pop culture a little more strongly beyond just being this old TV show that's been in syndication. It became an ongoing concern through the movies. And uh, that sort of, locked it in as, okay, Star Trek is a thing, it exists, it might be background radiation to a lot of people, but it's still out there, and so now when we launch a new Star Trek, which was of course the 20th anniversary of the original show, uh, when they announced uh, TNG, that kind of made it feel more inevitable and more like a, a thing people would, would go for in a way that maybe Phase 2 didn't. That's my own personal take on why that one was able to survive. Of course, it's also the fact that it was very compelling. Uh, you know, they had a great lead in Patrick Stewart. I mean, he definitely held the show together for, for, for long. I think if they hadn't had Patrick Stewart, we might not be having this conversation. Um, and um, I think uh, just the fact that it had... It grabbed a cultural moment it for a variety of reasons enough to sort of drag it along drag itself along until it became good <laughs> i i have i'll defend the first couple seasons of next generation uh, to a degree but it clearly did need a few seasons to come into its own and and become what it became i absolutely agree with everything you've just said especially uh, with respect to how did the show not only become popular, but how did the show survive its first two seasons? And I think the answer to that has to be, as you've noted, the momentum that Star Trek had gained from the movies, that it had gained a broader public constituency than it had ten years before, and Patrick Stewart, who I think brought credibility and a degree of basic competence to the show that was often lacking from other aspects of the production, especially in the first two years. I think, look, it's a bit difficult for me to definitively say why people loved The Next Generation because I appreciate The Next Generation more than I love it. I'm like you, that Deep Space Nine is my favourite Star Trek show. But in terms of what is my comfort food Star Trek show, what's the one that I remember watching the most of when I was a kid? It's not Next Gen, it's Voyager. And I think a lot of people have the same reaction to Next Gen that I do to Voyager. It is, by and large, 42 minutes of 
competent, effectively produced science, self-contained science fiction, especially in the later years when there was a greater degree of harmony amongst the writers, when the production standards were a bit higher, once the actors had a better handle of their characters. I think The Next Generation offers... It's a really efficient machine at producing self-contained science fiction stories. Obviously, the original series has an element of that as well, but if anything, The Next Generation is less at once less daring than the original series. You don't have as many plainly fantastical adventures, stuff like Cat's Paw or Spectre of the Gun from the original series. But also because it is more interested in the cast beyond a central trio, you can do stories about characters other than the big three that offers a couple more formulae for episodes than the original series necessarily had. So to sum it up, I think The Next Generation had a really efficient set of formula formulae for producing episodes that it could produce at a relatively high level of competence, which were accessible to a widespread audience without necessarily containing the degree of serialization or self self mythologizing that might have that you might see in later series. So I, I think the answer to why the next generation was so successful is because first and foremost it had an exceptionally good formula for making TV and it succeeds first and foremost as a TV show rather than necessarily resting upon the affection of its audience for Star Trek first and foremost. I want to point to something you said specifically which was uh, comfort food and you are by far not the first person I've heard to refer to uh, Next Generation era Star Trek as comfort food. I mean any era of Star Trek to a certain degree but I actually do think one of the things that makes Next Generation uh, beloved at the time and now years later to so much of its fan base uh, is there are many aspects of Star Trek which appeal greatly to its fan base and turn off of people who don't like it. And I think one of the biggest ones is that as that aspect of it being ASMR uh, for science fiction. Uh, it is it is if you want to look at it a certain way, it's very bland, but it's very calm. It's very soothing. It doesn't go in unlike modern day television and fiction in general and to a certain extent, it does not go for the jugular in terms of what's the most dramatic, what's the most the biggest conflict we can generate at any given moment. It dodges things that other shows would just go straight for like, well, here's the source of conflict. Okay, let's play that up and make that the focus of the thing. Because of the nature of the show, it often just it completely doesn't end run around the part of the, the story that you would expect to have, um, you know, to be the driving narrative engine where there'd be conflict. And it is often misguided in that, <laughs> I think. That's not unfair to say. But when it works, because it does work sometimes that they do that, it makes the show actually very unpredictable in a way. It makes it, uh, conversely, uh, paradoxically, uh, engaging that they don't go for the obvious. Aha! That person, you know, w fell in love with that other guy's woman, so they're going to be fighting by Act Three. Like they th they don't do the obvious set. I've found a lot of TV these days. I see where they're going with the conflict, and it all feels very forced and very, you know, 
unengaging because you can just see where they're going with it. It's like the characters are going to fall out and they're going to have conflict. And when you go for conflict every time, it's just as boring as when you have no conflict, right? Like it's, if you go, or at least when you go for the predictable conflict every time, uh, it's just as boring. And to see characters who are heroic, who do get along, who do uh, engage with each other and who talk things out uh, is really, uh, there's a real appeal and there was always a very strong appeal to that. Um, you know, again, you could argue that they fell short of what they could have accomplished and they, they missed the boat in many occasions, but it is something that you don't see a lot of in a lot of other shows, especially nowadays. And that counterbalances it in ways that are, that are, uh, that, that make it very engaging. I think it's, it's, uh, it's pretty remarkable. One thing, uh, I'd always noticed about next generation is if somebody comes to some running down the hallway, screaming, Ah, I was just abducted by aliens, and 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 I was thrown into another parallel dimension. You never see next generation character the the crew of the next generation going. Oh, there's that. Larry must be crazy. He must have space madness. Like nobody ever does that, which makes sense because they're in Star Trek. They live in a crazy spaceship where crazy things happen every day. But people are always believed in their traumas in Next Generation. That's actually a significant thing that I I'm not sure people emphasize enough. Pe People always believe each other, and they trust each other, and they go along with whatever they've been told by each other. There, there's a great deal of trust among the crew. Uh, I think that's actually a really strong point uh, in its favor for the people who do like Next Generation. That's a really, really good point. And I think it's... There's a couple of things to unpick from that. One is that... The original series thrives to a large extent upon the interplay between its three main leads, with the other characters playing important roles, but definitely being secondary characters. But I think Next Generation, an enormous part of its appeal, is personal connection to the main cast of characters and to the interplay between the main cast of characters, that these are professionals who like each other and it's it's almost like the appeal of modern sitcoms like Parks and Recreation or Brooklyn Nine-Nine, where uh, what they call hangout sitcoms, you're not all that invested in what's happening in terms of plot. It is fundamentally an opportunity to spend 22 minutes with people that you like. And what you've identified with Next Gen, that it's about professionals doing their jobs in a responsible and respectful manner, I think is an early example of that phenomenon. An enormous part of the appeal for audiences was an opportunity to engage, if you like, with this these characters in this world. And that's important and valuable. And it actually ties back to the political content of the show. You've, as you've noted, Next Gen takes place at the end of history, as it were. Obviously, Fukuyama's idea was that with the end of the Cold War, even though history as itself wouldn't stop, conflicts would be within the framework of a broader neoliberal idea which had proven to be the dominant organising idea for mankind. Next Gen obviously takes place in a completely different ideological set which was actually proven to be the end of history, that it's about managing dilemmas arising within a broad framework in which everyone agrees that resources should be shared for the public good. But I think part of the... As much as I don't think people tuned into Next Generation because they were really, really invested in seeing how a post-materialist quasi-communist society would play out, 
given that the way that people voted during the relevant era didn't demonstrate an enormous degree of commitment to that ideal. I do think that that setup is an important part of what drives the character dynamics that made the show so successful. You can't extricate the political setting of the show from the way in which characters treat each other and in turn from the fact that it was so beloved. Right, yeah, it, it, it is definitely, um, it, it's an era where we thought everything could be, and I mean, again, it was aspirational to a degree, even in, you know, the mid-90s, nobody thought that everything gets settled when we all sit down quietly and join hands and have a conversation, but it, it there was a certain degree of belief in that. Um, it's it's actually a little depressing to look at that, you know, in the early '90s. Uh, that attitude of well, you know, if we if we uh, if we reason our way out of this, we can have peace and and prosperity and all this wonderful stuff. Uh, compared to the people who talk about facts and logic these days and how facts and logic will get us through everything, uh, you know, they're not as interested in the kind of ideals you get from next generation anymore. Unfortunately, it's more about uh, you know uh, proving their own superiority than anything. Uh, and it is funny because Star Trek uh, Next Generation is definitely where we've seen uh, Star Trek really put the emphasis on, you know, science and exploration. Uh, again, they were always there. It was always part of Star Trek. But it was an aspect of Star Trek that got very greatly uh, enhanced and exaggerated by the fans. As we've said, there are many aspects of Star Trek that people picked up on and turned into defining characteristics of the show in a way they may not have been intended to be. Uh, by the time you get to Next Generation, the heroism of science, you had a generation by that point, so this is another thing that made Next Generation successful, I think, is you actually did have a generation that had been inspired by the original series, had grown up, and maybe entered scientific or engineering fields because they were inspired by Star Trek. Uh, we know there were, literally there was there were astronauts who appeared on Star Trek Next Generation as like background characters because they were so jazzed that there was a Star Trek show and that they wanted to appear on it. Um, there there were, you know, some, I'm not going to say NASA threw its doors open, but there were certainly, you know, technical consultants and engineers who, who, who worked on the show and had some back and forth. LeVar Burton famously did a remote for Reading Rainbow, uh, which was probably... Uh, he probably initially got the access because of NASA was excited because he was going to be on Next Generation. <laughs> so there, there, I think there's a bit of a, there's definitely an era, that's definitely an era where you see, uh, you know, it, it becomes, I, I effing love science, um, <laughs> the, 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 the attitude of Star Trek. Um, so throughout the late 80s and early 90s, um, that's when uh, that that whole aspect of uh, Star Trek really became cemented. And ironically, that element has maybe dwindled a bit uh, in the last 20 years as well. Uh, but it was very strongly there in the 90s. I, I think that's absolutely right. And that emphasis upon science, that emphasis upon engineering solutions, ties into one of the key themes of the show, which is its resolute secularism. In the original series, you could have a scene where Apollo d uh, speaks to Kirk of mankind's gods, and Kirk says, we find that just the one will do. Or you could have the ending of Bread and Circuses, in which it's revealed that the planet of the Romans isn't actually worshipping the sun, they're worshipping the son of God. Or you could have quasi a quasi-Christian marriage service at the beginning of Balance and Terror, of Terror with what could be viewed as a Christian cross in the background. 
you could not do any of that on The Next Generation. It's not a show that explicitly says religion is gone, but it is a show which takes place against the assumption that the characters are not religious or that the characters do not require religious belief as a source of personal fulfilment. And that carries through into a what I suppose you could call a secular humanist theme of the show in that it is resolutely interested in rational dialogue even as an answer to irrational or emotional concerns, that it, it, it prioritises a particular set of solutions to human grievances based fundamentally upon the idea of the inevitability of progress, based upon the idea that technological and rational advancement are inexorable, inevitable, and ultimately desirable. Yes, um, it, it's... Um, um... Yeah, the, the secularism is something that uh, that act, that probably is one element of Star Trek. A lot of elements of Star Trek that era uh, definitely landed with me. Um, and um, it, it's funny, you can trace my own history. Uh, you know how people have adolescence and they rebel against their, their dads and then they eventually grow up and go, you know, oh, I'm, or their parents, and then they go, okay, I, I reconciled with them a bit more. That's what I did with Star Trek. So it was me loving Star Trek and just, like, marinating in Star Trek uh, when I was a kid. And then getting to a point where, like, oh, Star Trek is stupid. It's such a stupid show. Oh, it's so stupid. I I can't I can't believe I ever liked this show. It's so dumb. And, and then eventually I sort of came back to it and realized, you know, how much I'd missed it, as it were. Um, <laughs> but, and one of those things, actually, that did hang up with me, and, I, and I'm not religious at all, and I, my own secular upbringing of course i was brought up in a very in a pretty much religion free zone but as i started to get older i started to get more interested in religion and i could very much relate to star trek secularism but i also got to a point where i like you're never going to have that you're never going to have a world without religion uh the way they're portraying it or at least you're never going to have a world where you know religion is implicitly seen to be something we've advanced beyond and and uh, gone into uh, you know as the new world advances there are many aspects of star trek you know it's funny even the term the end of history uh, could be seen as a bit of a marxist term um like it, it's one of those many ways in which arguably the current culture and neoliberalism kind of picked clean a, a lot of the ideas that had gone into marxism uh for the first 50 to 100 years of its existence and transformed it into leo neoliberal globalist capitalism all that kind of stuff while keeping a lot of the same ideas and one of those was the way science fiction took the utopian ideals of marxism and and sort of transferred it over into a more you know neoliberal framework that could exist within capitalism and the idea of this total secularism is is something that came from that as well you know marxist would very flatly say that yeah, that's like they would agree with next generation. They would say, yeah, yeah, we're going to evolve beyond uh, religion. We don't need religion anymore. Um, and that never that never felt very plausible once I started to get a little older. <laughs> you know, not not even to comment it as a as a good or bad thing, just to say I don't think it's that plausible. As with many other aspects of Star Trek, though, you could argue you're seeing it through a fairly narrow lens and and actually that is something that i've gone to bat for in the past because um in deep space nine there's a key line where uh cisco's dad quotes uh, the bible and cisco goes i never saw, thought of you as a religious man 
that seems to pretty strongly imply religion does still exist at the time of Trek. Uh, it's not something that we've forgotten about. And it's, again, it may just be that because we see Starfleet, which is a scientific organization as much as a, as a, as a military one, that they tend towards the secular and atheist sides. And uh, so they're, you know, there probably aren't uh, as many religious people in Starfleet, but certainly we don't see human churches and we don't, or mosques or synagogues or, or, or anything like that. So there's definitely, religion is left to the other races like the Bajorans. So they're very strongly implying that whole uh, thing that secularism kind of died down. Uh, but again, I, it, I think it's significant that, you know, Ron Moore, who had a big access on a uh, big uh, influence on Deep Space Nine in particular, uh, I think he pushed back up against a lot of the ideas that we're talking about with Star Trek and and sort of went, oh no, they still, like he he, he didn't, he, he acknowledged that they didn't have uh, money and uh, trade in the same way that we do, but he kind of pushed back against it and said, well, I don't know how well that works. And all, a lot of the classic secu uh, Star Trek ideas that we take for granted uh, kind of got pushed back on, I noticed by Ron Moore, but the Deep Space Nine people in general as well. I think that point about the plausibility of a post-religious future is actually a perfect way of segueing into the difference in values between DS9 and Next Generation, because in many ways the Next Generation is the high watermark of that view of the secular post-religious Star Trek future, and it's something that every Star Trek show in different ways has pushed back against since. It, you're absolutely right to point out that Cisco's father is able to quote scripture, and indeed that Cisco, in his vision in Far Beyond the Stars, views his father as a preacher. But even beyond that, DS9 is in large part a show about the important role that religious faith plays for people, the role that faiths of various kinds, whether it be explicit religious faith, like uh, the Bajoran religion, or quasi-religious faiths, like the, the Ferengi faith in capitalism, how they play this enormously important organising role in how people see themselves, how they relate to each other. If Next Generation posits a set of moral values completely distinct from spirituality and religion, DS9 pushes back against that by suggesting that religion in it plays an enormously important organising role, and that, I think, is inevitably the product of the fact that it was made against a different political backdrop after the end of the Cold War, in which religious conflicts and religious revivals played a key dominant role in global politics and society. DS9 is responding to the role of religion in the 1990s, just as Next Gen is responding to the possibility of the end of history as that emerged in the late 1980s. Yes, uh, I think um, it, it, in some ways, a lot of people see D Space Nine as, you know, subverting Next Generation. Like it almost took Next Generation and went, no, 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 this, um, which I don't think is quite accurate. I've always, I've always seen, in some ways, I've always seen Next Generation D Space Nine as one big thing. Like it's almost like, in many ways, D Space Nine is take it wouldn't be what it is without next generation and it takes all the stuff that was in next generation and sort of pushes it into Mach 7 both in some very literal senses like the fact that uh this is where Worf really comes into his own and arguably O'Brien as well uh things like you know the Cardassians and Bajorans which are set up on next generation get really interesting payoffs the whole Klingon plot line 
has an arc that runs through Next Generation, but really starts to hit hard in Deep Space Nine, things like that. Um, so in that regard, and it, you you know, if you were being simplistic and unfair to Next Generation, you could say that Next Generation is the setup and Deep Space Nine is the payoff. Uh, and in one way, I think that that's significant. I think that um, the fact that Deep Space Nine deals with these ideas, the Federation coming to a planet that's been torn by sectarian violence, that has to deal with the influence on, of religion on its culture, uh, that has a, an ominous, you know, uh, militaristic force threatening it from outside, that has supernatural entities that fiddle in its affairs, all that kind of stuff. Um, it's all stuff that was dealt with on Next Generation, and indeed the original series, but in those two shows... Kirk or Picard would come flying by, deal with it, solve all their problems in an episode, or destroy their society, whatever, and then fly off to the next uh, to the next thing. The main difference in Deep Space Nine isn't that they're doing this, it's that they're staying there. They can't blow up Bajor every week and run off to the next planet. They have to stay there and continue to work and clean up whatever messes exist, um, which I think is great in many ways it it it, it strengthens next generation because it shows well the the federation doesn't just the starfleet doesn't just swoop in and and make a mess every week it it leaves people to solve problems it's just that we don't see that as much and here we are seeing that as much but because it was week after week we're here with the same group of people they didn't we didn't leave them behind last week so we have to keep developing their problems and we have to keep developing them and and dealing with some of the less glamorous ideas of of uh, of you know making things okay for them, uh, you 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 get your hands dirty on Deep Space Nine. That's why you feel like you're getting your hands dirty on Deep Space Nine more than anything else, more than any cynicism against the values of Star Trek, which is sometimes accused of having. Um, it's that it's that they're they're there with their feet planted on the ground of Bajor uh, week after week. I completely agree. I don't think that DS9 is subverting TNG. I don't think that DS9 could exist without TNG. It's no more subversive than, say, Spock and Alia could be said to be subversive of the original series, because they're essentially asking the same questions. TNG paints this universe, and DS9 asks, how does this work? It's interested in the nuts and bolts of... You've established, for example, that the Ferengi are a culture built upon capitalism. How does that work in practice? How do they understand themselves? They don't regard themselves as the cartoonish villains that Roddenberry saw themselves as. What is their sense of self? There must be Ferengi who aren't overly invested in business. What are their lives like? DS9 isn't depicting a fundamentally different world to TNG. It's examining how the TNG world works at the level of detail that you can't do from your running, when you're running from place to place. There is, I think, one potential ideological conflict between TNG and DS9, and that's, I think, the really interesting question of why humans are better in the future. TNG takes place in a post-materialist future in which poverty, war, and want have been solved. But it doesn't explicitly say that these have been solved because it's a post-materialist future. It's at least open to view TNG as being a world that is better because humans are better. That is to say, because the inexorable arc of progress has caused us to evolve beyond those initial base passions. We've been able to build a better world because we've become more enlightened as individuals. 
DS9 consistently takes a reverse stand, and I think it's nowhere better illustrated than in the episode Hard Time. For those viewers who don't have an encyclopedic knowledge of the show, Hard Time is an episode in which Chief Miles O'Brien spends 20 years in prison in his mind, and it completely destroys him psychologically. And at the end, he grapples with suicide because of the things that he's done, but also because he's fallen so far short of the ideals that he's been taught throughout his life. He's been told over and over again that humans are better in the 24th century. And yet, ultimately, when he was deprived, when he was starving, when he was imprisoned, he resorted to theft and violence. And that, I think, is a key aspect of Deep Space Nine, that in Deep Space Nine, people aren't better because that's just the way we've evolved. People are better because they have material conditions that allow them to be better. That it's that absence of poverty made possible by the economic and political system in the future that allows humans to live up to those ideals as essayed in the next generation. It's not anything inherent about, oh, that's how the species evolves over the next 400 years. It's because of political and economic and social change. And I think that's a really interesting, and if anything, that's a more inspiring political vision than that provided by NextGen. Because if it's a question that, oh, we're just going to evolve that way, then that is an oddly passive view of how history is going to go. We're going to get to live in next gen, but it's going to take a few hundred years and it's just not something we can do anything about. Whereas DS9 posits a future in which we can be as good as the Star Trek characters, but what it ultimately calls for is political and social reform and getting rid of the material conditions that drive us to those aspects of the human character which have been done away with by the 24th century. I think that is a, a real difference between the shows, but beyond that, DS9 is largely scribbling in the margins of the world that TNG built. Yeah, it's, it's uh, uh, the, of course, the, uh, the, the darker take on what you just said with Deep Space Nine is the line, it's easy to be a saint in paradise. Uh, but, you know, by the same token, you know, it is easy to be a saint in paradise. So let's do that. <laughs> um, I, I want to, I don't know if you had anything, uh, did you have anything, I, I want to move on uh, quickly to uh, everyone's problematic fave uh, Enterprise, uh, but uh, did you have anything specific to say about Voyager uh, at that point, just before we, we jump forward? Because I think from this, in the scope of this discussion, Voyager kind of gloms together with Next Generation. I don't know if there's a huge amount uh, that you can say about it that, that sort of evolves in the next gen. The one thing I wanted to say about Voyager, which I think is interesting, is how the Marquis are depicted in Voyager. And that is, I think, a real difference between DS9 and Voyager, and one which ultimately limited their utility on Voyager. Part of what makes the Marquis on DS9 interesting is that they're not just opposed to the Federation because of a territorial conflict. Eddington, in particular, has a real ideological difference with the Federation, that the Federation's cult of bigness, its absolute faith in its own virtue, and its absolute faith that it is a good thing that the Federation is consistently expanding, ultimately blinds it to the moral consequences of its actions and leads it into unconscionable directions, like doing treaties with the Cardassians. Eddington isn't just opposed to the Federation because they've sold out worlds in the DMZ, which is a localised territorial conflict, but because he has fundamental questions about the entire enterprise. 
The Marquis are at once a much larger part of the Voyager cast, and yet have no real ideological difference with the Starfleet characters. They are in the Marquis because they are committed to a particular struggle over a particular set of worlds, or at most because they don't fit into Starfleet as a military organisation, and even that goes away pretty quickly. And going to political context, I think DS9 is far more willing to examine the Federation as an analogue of the United States and to reckon with and engage with critiques of American power, and in particular to engage with critiques of the United States' belief in its own inexorable goodness, its manifest destiny, if you will. Whereas Voyager, because Voyager doesn't give that ideological critique to the Marquis, it's considerably less willing or able to place the Federation in a political context or to draw upon the history or conflicts of the 1990s as a background for the Federation. And that ultimately means that there's a lot less for the Federation and the Marquis on Voyager to argue about. It really does ultimately come down to who do you think should run a couple of planets on the other side of the galaxy. And that ultimately is not something that could provide long-term conflicts for the Voyager riders to draw upon. Right. Yeah, and and in fact, uh, that's a pretty good segue um, because uh, that 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 acts helps helps explain uh, I think what went wrong with Enterprise uh, because it did become uh, a show where uh, that it was the first Star Trek show that happened after nine eleven as it as pretty much no one could possibly forget and it's almost comical how perfectly. Uh, the division is because it literally launched. What was it like? Two weeks after nine eleven happened, um, it, it was right after uh, the transition uh, between the what we would what I think anyone would call uh, the big breaking point of the nineties era and the and what came after um, was when nine eleven. A lot of people say decades take a few years to end, and that was the end of the nineties. That was the, that was nine eleven, um, and uh, of course, uh, Enterprise couldn't immediately react to it uh but it was funny how it was kind of headed there a little uh because it was dealing with the idea of you know uh somewhat more flawed humans than we'd seen before on star trek even in the original series uh and a little bit more of a gung-ho uh human race that still needed to learn where they were as we saw the vulcans were still uh, had their own issues that come out over enterprise and so on and so forth uh but it it's significant to me i think that um, whereas the original series, uh, was in the middle of a very tumultuous political time, um, and was able to respond to that, not always, you know, as smoothly as one might like, but with all these different ideas and attitudes and approaches, uh, and it, it you know, that it, it sort of lived, it lived in the middle of the conflict, um, by next generation's time, because it was in this very, uh, lull i what could argue at least for america was a bit of a lull time in history um they were more able to deal with this sort of well we've just we've the the whiggish attitude of we've reached uh we've reached an equilibrium and yes we're headed there in a more uh in a more uh pronounced way and they were so married to that for a decade that when history started back up again uh, in in nine in at nine eleven, uh, Trek was a little bit thrown for a loop, and it didn't 
quite know how to react to that. It couldn't just be the next generation anymore. The first two years of Enterprise definitely kind of want to be Enterprise again with maybe a bit more personal, or want to be a next generation again with a bit more personal conflict. That's my take on it. Um, and then it starts to want to be a post 9-11 show, which is, you know, guns with guns and guns and more guns. Um, and, and of course, dealing, you know, to be fair to Enterprise, they do deal with, of course, all the the, just as the original show uh, wasn't necessarily going, yes, we have to smash the commies, uh, <laughs> Next, n uh, Enterprise is never saying, yeah, we got to smash the, the jihadists. Uh, and in fact, it takes some fairly firm stands against that kind of jingoism at a few points in Enterprise. But of course, it gets confused because it was swept along in the same uh, pop cultural forces that the rest of uh, uh, U.S. was at that point where, you know, you had to go along with the war. You had to. We had to fight this existential threat we were facing, and you couldn't just say no. We shouldn't fight them. That would be far too radical for most people, including, uh, you know, what was at that point the makers of a very uh, established and uh, comfortable science fiction franchise. I think you're absolutely right that Enterprise takes its sweet time to catch up to the modern world. The first two seasons of the show have this sort of glassy-eyed insistence that although we are making a show set in a different era, there's no reason why we can't keep using the same basic formula that we've been using for 15 years, even though the world has changed, even though the world of TV production has changed. The first two seasons of Enterprise are startlingly conservative in terms of TV production in terms of how many of them could have been episodes of other shows and in terms of this complete failure to engage with huge sweeping changes in American life and politics. If anything, this is illustrated by how perfect and savage and accidental a George W. Bush caricature Captain Archer is. He's a gung-ho guy who thinks with his gut, who's got the biggest starfleet in the, uh, starship in the fleet because his dad was a key starship designer, who's burning with resentment about this sense, uh, about his family history and about this sense of being looked down upon. He's, he, he, crucially, he's not a cowboy because it consists entirely of this swaggering, unearned machismo that manifests as complete stubborn opposition to anyone telling him better. Now, independent of whether the actual George W. Bush as a person is like that, this fits perfectly with the pop cultural caricature of George W. Bush that existed in the same years. Now, this doesn't seem to be intentional on the part of the show at all. If anything, it could just be that they're all drawing upon the same sources in drafting the same characters without any intentional overlap. But it's a sign of just how blind the show had gotten to political and social context, that it has a main character who perfectly parallels an extremely controversial US president, and it doesn't do anything with this or demonstrate any sort of self-awareness whatsoever. But then the show veers wildly in season three into doing a show, a season that is explicitly about the threat of terrorism and explicitly about the need to adopt strong martial measures in defence. And I think it's a mess. I think season three of Enterprise is 
this conflicting massive impulses of at once wanting to speak to a popular demand for punchy action shows about ticking clocks and the need to take extreme measures to stop bad guys who'll stop at nothing and how you don't want the warning shot to be a, a mushroom cloud and how even a 1% chance is too damn high. And Captain Archer, his methods might be unorthodox, but damn it, he gets results. But it's mashed up with this residual liberal impulse, which seems to owe less to actual conviction on the part of the authors than to where a Star Trek show, so there's things that we can't do. And I think it's all the weaker for being liberal because we're Star Trek than liberal because of a genuine ideological opposition to this particular trend in American life and media. And so you end up with a season that makes gestures towards the need for dialogue and the idea that there are no irreconcilable differences, but which is harnessed to a structure which is fundamentally illiberal and which is fundamentally based upon the idea that there are some differences that can only be resolved by strapping bombs to your opponents, ducking behind pillars, and blowing them to kingdom come. It's a mess, and the fact that Star Trek could not think up a particularly coherent ideological response to American life in the early 2000s, save by doing what it had done before or doing stuff that other TV shows had done, is a sign of just how exhausted the show had become. Yeah, I, I think that that uh, that puts your thing that that sums it up pretty much. Um, it was it had spent because of what they we just gone through, uh, just as arguably American culture and world culture, or at least the Western, you, you know, uh, Western culture uh, had been for the last uh, decade or so, uh, it had stopped having to think on its feet, had stopped having to consider morality except as this very detached uh, you know, ivory tower type of thing where I could look down and say, oh, we have all the best intentions. What if we move this piece over here and this sort of thing? Um, at, whereas, as I say, again, the original series was smack dab in the middle of this tumultuous time, so it knew it had to, you know, take stands on things or it had to have something to say and it had to zig and it had to zag and maybe it did things in ambiguous ways, but it was... It, it knew it, it it was responding to the day's events essentially as it were uh, and the day's events called for divisiveness and for uh, you know things that uh, really uh, came hard on came down hard on people's uh, uh, people's lives like they it was it was it was all there it was in your face um, even no matter how comfortable you were you know the Vietnam War was on all that sort of stuff in the 90s, that it all receded to a dull roar, and then suddenly it all caught up with us, as I said. So, uh, unfortunately, Enterprise really missed its shot to be, yes, damn it, we're Star Trek, and we're going to stand for all the stuff Star Trek has stood for, for a better future, to thinking things out logically, to working together, uh, to looking towards, you know, not just uh, the next hill over, but the horizon, you know, something far down the line. We're not just going to look at what's in front of us today. Um, that was something Star Trek could have been committed to and didn't. Now, I'd argue that towards the very end, um, a lot of it just came down to Enterprise finding a way to work as simply as a TV show, which it hadn't always done up till that point. And it had found a way to, be, to exist within Star Trek as an entertaining and fun 
TV show, I think, by the fourth season. Uh, whether it had found its spine or not is a is a question, um, and it certainly wasn't taking bold stances exactly. And you could argue that by retreating more into the nostalgia uh, era of, Star of the early Star Trek, uh, that it was actually backing away from that. But at the same time, there is a feeling like, okay, we're, we're finding our feet and we're deciding, you know what, we're not a show about guns and and blowing up the bad guys and and all this stuff we're not we're not the uh the 300 era you know screaming violently in slow motion as orange and teal clods of dirt rain down on you uh they sort of flirted with that in season three and then they decided no screw it we're going to be at least at the very least we're going to be a fun show and we're going to kind of uh, embrace some of the silliness of classic Trek. We're going to acknowledge our own origins, actually. A lot of this is very speculative, but I do kind of think that that would have eventually brought them around to something that maybe was a little more interesting, a little more, um, a little more responsive to the current times that they lived in. Um, I, I think they, they at least had the seeds to become uh, a bit of a braver show. Uh, there and and you know the the tragedy is that it ended well may, depending on how you feel about Enterprise but the tragedy is that it it you know it didn't uh, it didn't get to go to the next step and I, I I don't know I have enough faith in Star Trek in general and the people who had been part of the continuity of Star Trek up to that point that I I, I feel like they would have got there eventually uh, but they just they they were they were wrong footed by nine eleven. And uh, they unfortunately they didn't they didn't uh, they they took a bit of a coward's way well not not a coward's way out but a confused person's way out and then um, which I think is significant just to to bring it round to you know we'll we'll probably talk more about this in the next episode but once we get to the Abrams era um, at which point there's been a pretty strong clean break uh, between the different eras of Star Trek you know Star Trek Enterprise ended. Uh, at, what was it, five years before the Abrams movie? Um, and at that point, Abrams is a four years. Okay, so the, but, but it was essentially everyone go back to your homes. And when Star Trek came together again, it was, it wasn't really the same team in any way, shape, or form. It was, it was J.J. Abrams, who was very actively said, I don't get Star Trek. He clearly wanted it as the, the jumping pad to make Star Wars. <laughs> um, and, um, that was, you know, to his credit, you had to find a way to make Star Trek uh, commercially appealing again. And we'll talk about commercial appeal and so on. Uh, but the Abrams era of Trek um, is responding politically 100%. Um, it's just found weird ways to do it. I think that there's just... I think we need to wrap up relatively soon. So there's just uh, two points I'm going to address arising from that. The first is whether season four of Enterprise was the show finding its feet. And my blunt view is that if that were the show's feet, I'm not particularly interested in where it was walking. Um, Enterprise in season four doubles down on nostalgia. You're absolutely right. And I think that was ultimately not going to be a particularly viable route for the show, either in terms of creative success or in terms of its ability to serve the role that Star Trek had traditionally played as a uh, political commentator. I 
think that part of the problem with season four of Enterprise is that its main reason for existing seems to be commenting upon Star Trek. It's a Star Trek show that is predominantly about Star Trek rather than about our world. And it just, I think, becomes a... If Star Trek is purely making shows about Star Trek for an audience of Star Trek fans, I don't think that's either particularly interesting or that it has a viable route going forward. DS9, which obviously, as we've said, is concerned with how the TNG episode universe works, is crucially asking those questions as part of a broader project of making stories about how our world works. It's asking how the TNG world works because of what it says about us as people. Whereas I don't think stuff like how the Vulcan Reformation happens has particularly much contemporary resonance. The other thing is in terms of the Abrams movies, which you're absolutely right, we'll discuss in more detail next time. The politics of the Abrams movies themselves range from practically non-existent, like 2009's Star Trek, to deeply unfortunate and confused in the case of Star Trek Into Darkness. But honestly, I think one of the most Star Trek moments in the entire franchise, and the point at which the show properly, well and truly worked out the enormous philosophical reactions that had come into it after 9-11, is in Star Trek Beyond, when Kirk, facing down Kral, explicitly says, we're not soldiers, better to live with, uh, better to die saving lives than live with taking them. And that explicit rejection of, we are not a military organisation, you built the world in which we live, but we have evolved beyond you. Even in the context of a movie that is, by and large, a relatively straightforward good time at the cinema, I think that explicit statement of what Star Trek is and what Star Trek is not is an extremely welcome statement after such a long period of agonising over whether Star Trek is military or isn't and is the answer to what Enterprise was attempting to work out throughout its last years on air. What does Star Trek look like in a post-9-11 era? And it's an explicit reaffirmation there's still a place for a franchise that rejects violent solutions to violent problems, and an explicit reaffirmation of that faith in in a better future, even in the post-9-11 world. So beyond really is the final point or an important point in the journey that Enterprise started. And I'm happy to give Enterprise credit for starting to ask those questions in the third and fourth seasons. Yeah, well, see, this is one of the things, because arguably three times in the 21st century, Star Trek has appeared, it's gone, "Uh uh-oh, what are we now, post-9-11, and it's stumbled, and yet each time I think it's, it's... just through the power of being Star Trek. And again, this may be a factor of stuff like fan pressure and people who who really love Star Trek starting to get more in in you know in front of the camera or behind the camera. Uh, but it, whatever happens, Star Trek does ultimately find its way uh, back to being Star Trek again. It it was I, I I do believe it was happening on Enterprise. It happens as you say in the movies, the Abrams movies, by the f- the first movie is sort of empty. The second movie is really out to lunch politically, unfortunately. And the but the third movie uh is becoming what we see as Star Trek. Like it it did find its way eventually. It unfortunately took three movies. But and then it and, and then that series essentially ended. But it was definitely becoming 
what Star Trek's supposed to be. And now with uh, Discovery and the current era of TV shows, which I'll kind of lump together, um, I'd argue that Discovery, after struggling for a while, has started to settle on uh, becoming something that is uh, very much what uh, Star Trek should be. Um, when they announced this season, I thought it was very dramatically compelling, but like a lot of people, I was worried uh, that it was going to be um, you know, Star Trek becoming wrong-footed, that while it's potentially very powerful to place, uh, to blow up the Star Trek universe and say, well, it's not utopian anymore. Uh, what happens if that happened? What happens if you're suddenly, uh, you know, the standard bearers of light in a universe of darkness rather than uh, maintainers of a universe of light? Uh, you kind of go, oh, well, you know, that, that might take away a lot from what Star Trek is. That may be too destructive to the franchise. Uh, to their credit, I think they've really uh, managed to keep a view on what Star Trek is. I think that uh, they didn't throw out the baby with the bathwater. I think they did keep it pretty hardly focused on, no, we can still do good things. It's not all hope is lost. We're not amping up the conflict to that degree. Uh, it's it's much more of a um, a, hold, a holding pattern. It's it's I think truer to where Star Trek needs to be in a post nine eleven world where we can't possibly imagine that everything's going to be fine. Everything's going to be fine. <laughs> we can't just sort of take that on faith anymore. Unfortunately, the way we maybe could during the next generation era. Um, and again. It goes back to what the original series was. It was a statement of, yeah, everything's terrible now, but damn it, we're going to get there. And um, Discovery's now circled back around to being that. It's being like, you know what? We can find our way back. We can we can be Star Trek again, <laughs> even in the 9-11 era. So, and they're to the point where they're, they're, they're actually finally, after I would argue 20 years, they're not just, or even 30, uh, 25, let's say, uh, they're they're starting to find uh, a a place to plant their flag and say, okay, no, we are proactively saying this is what we're going to be, rather than reactively saying that, which is something Star Trek has been doing for quite a while. Unfortunately, it's been reacting rather than proacting. <laughs> I think that's absolutely right. I know we have to wrap up relatively soon, and so this is actually a good point to get back to where we started talking about Next Generation. I really like Star Trek Discovery. It is a show with problems, sometimes very serious problems. It is a show that I'm not sure I would enjoy as much as I did if I didn't appreciate what it was trying to do. I consistently give Discovery points for effort. Some weeks, most of the points it gets are points for effort. But something I've really appreciated about season three in particular is how much it has doubled down on being a show that is fundamentally about professionals who are good people who are doing their jobs as best they can in difficult circumstances and focusing more upon that rapport and the relationship among the crew. It's taken some time to get there, and I think after a first season in particular in which the characters were quite thinly sketched, it was overdue. But I really like Burnham and Stamets and Tilly, especially Saru. Uh, I like Culver. I like the cast and I enjoy spending time with them because I like them as people and I want them to do well. And that sounds like a very low bar, but given that that's crucial to the survival and longevity of Next Gen, the fact that Star Trek has returned to that fundamental idealism that 
sense of extreme earnestness. You can't separate the portrayal of those characters from the ideals that those characters are meant to represent. And ultimately, in the long term, I don't think you can separate that from what will hopefully be the long-term success of the show. Discovery is a show that I have faith in because I like the characters and want to spend time with them, and I hopefully that's what's going to help it find a way out of what has been a very difficult production so far. Yes, I 100% agreed. I mean, I think it's it's uh, it's still not you know firing quite on all cylinders, but it's it's it it's responding. Uh, as I say, it's it's become what it, it needs to be. I think uh, in terms of Star Trek, uh, and and it's 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 looking at in in it's looking good going forward, I guess it's in much the same way that I think uh, the other two iterations, the the other two 21st century iterations of Star Trek were starting to find their feet uh, before, you know, not being able to continue, but discovery is going to be able to continue. So I think, uh, I think there's a lot of hope uh, going forward that we could see some really interesting stuff. Now, of course, we'll be talking more about this in future episodes. Uh, But yeah, it it is, uh, it is good to see that uh, in a weird way, we've come full circle and it's, gone back to uh, Star Trek, um, again, being the voice of uh, optimism and, and hope, uh, and and not really being afraid of that anymore. <laughs> being willing to, to actively engage with that, while still acknowledging, you know, uh, some of the, the the darker aspects. That's, that's, a, that's a very good synthesis of what I like about Star Trek, because if sometimes Next Generation felt like it was, and some of the other Berman era, felt like it was kind of denying that anything could go wrong. And if other eras have felt like, you know, they've leaned too hard on everything is going wrong. (laughs) The, the current iteration of discovery is coming close to saying, Hey, things go wrong, but maybe we can fix them, which I, that's what I appreciate about uh, the current show. So um, again, we're going to uh, wrap up for uh, for the uh, for now. Um, and again, we'll we'll be talking, I think, a bit more about twenty uh, first century Star Trek in the next episode, uh, as we talk about Star Trek as more of a uh, commercial entity. <laughs> um, but uh, for now, that uh, once again, I'm Adam Prosser. Uh, I do all the plugging because I have all the pluggables. Uh, I'm on. Uh, uh, I have another podcast called What Mad Universe where we look at science fiction and fantasy more broadly. It's uh, at uh, neversleepsnetwork.com slash series slash what-mad-universe or you could just Google What Mad Universe Podcast. It's on all the podcatchers, um, including Stitcher and iTunes. Um, we, uh, I have a, I'm online on Twitter at, pranks, at prankster36. And I, um, I actually have a Patreon. I haven't mentioned that before now, but if you Google Adam Prosser with two S's, if you like this show and other things that I do, you could uh, contribute to it, possibly. Help a starving artist. Uh, Douglas is Australian, so he has no physical needs. He lives in a land of uh, prosperity and plenty. Um, <laughs> but Yes. I live in the world that Star Trek is fighting for. Yes, exactly. That's in the future. Star Trek will be Australia. Star Trek is future is Australia, really. Um, <laughs> but um, anyway, so for uh, for now, let's uh, sign off. Uh, Douglas, live long and prosper. See you on the other side.